Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Maybe you should be a little bit uh, more busy in front of your computer. Well, I texted you at the climate. I texted you at eleven o'clock, and I'm like, like, are we podcasting today? And I get a response like an hour later, and then like demanding responses like within like fifteen seconds as to like what I want to do. I'm like, listen, dickhead, if you want me to prepare for this, you should have told me when I asked you an hour ago if we were doing this. Hold or on, not. Listen, wait, wait. Didn't hey, Chris, you, you send out the email? Didn't you send check out the invite? Reports. Like, yeah, exactly. Two See weeks ago like, or something. Or not? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to. I want to do some research on that. I, I think oh, the answer is clear on that. Lewis sent it. Interesting. Well, are you guys ready to get going? Let's do it. All right. Well, welcome to episode 81 of The Hammer Factor. My name is John Grace, producer here at the show. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Lewis Geltman, policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, and John Weld, co-owner of Immersion Research. We've made it to 81, boys. Spring is here. Tomorrow is April 1st. We've got a stack show, none other than whitewater legend, true whitewater legend, Eugene Buchanan, coming on the show here in a little bit. And uh, yeah, just so you know, it's still raining here in the southeast. Hasn't quit for three years. So, Well, we're done here. That's it. Is the water on its way out? I mean, you guys had like a solid I'd get a, I'd be, four I'd to get six like weeks this year. Right now <clears throat> if, if you could get a paddle. I actually was about to text you about that this morning. Yeah, right. You, you going to get a Sursky soon? What else is there to do? Golf? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> rake sand? <laughs> what do you do in the gorge in the summer? I think this is actually a blessing for my mental health for the little way to drop out before... It gets so warm and nice out that spirit is packed with tourists at all hours of the day and night. You've been struggling with that, haven't you, Lewis? Can you I, can you answer me? I can't question. even Just, talk about it. There may Just need to be an intervention with me. Like what? What's so, a, okay? Go ahead. It's it's not illegal to walk down to the falls, right? Depending on how you go. Right, but theoretically, there are, people are allowed to be there. Maybe it's okay. a little bit of a gray area. So, but hiking around the falls is okay if you're kayaking. Yes. If you got there by kayak, totally legit. Yes. If you walk down there, completely verboten. Yes. Okay. They're stacking what I'm chopping here. Right. <laughs> Picking up what I'm laying down. <laughs> Smell what I'm stepping in. <laughs> so, along the same lines, <clears throat> like we moved to Hood River, what, three years ago? Are we, do we not make the cut? Or do we make the cut? To hike into spirit or to portage around spirit? No, no. Like in terms like, are of you like, part of the problem? Yes, exa <laughs> exactly. Thank you. You're like you're in like a probationary period. I think you're doing okay though. You're like you're employing people. You're not posting social media pictures of spirit. You're yeah. you're contributing, which is good. That's what we need. Okay. More right. people like you, fewer idle rich. Right. Is there a particular incidence that like kind of pushed you over the edge, Lewis? Well, I mean, it, it's it's actively destroying the the landscape down there. Like the hill is gonna, there's gonna be a uh, like a like cataclysmic event down there because all the hikers are, you know, everybody's hiking off of whatever trail there originally was. Every little potential viewpoint to get a different photographic angle and spirit is like downtrodden. 
you know, the roots are being eroded out from under all the trees down there. Like the whole place just looks like a construction site at this point. Really? So, yeah, it's it's horrible. It's like it, it breaks my heart. Oh, I kind of was wanting and, like, to make fun of And the reason that is all happening is because of kayakers posting pictures on social media. It's like that is the, the genesis of all of this. You know, it's like people seeing those pictures and like, you know, everybody thinks it doesn't matter and thinks that they don't have enough of a following or think nobody in Portland's paying attention to what they're doing. But it just all feeds this, you know, it feeds the algorithm. It feeds this broader, like, flash mob generating social media I don't know, just mess that is just destroying the place. Oh. Like every single time that you post a picture of spirit on social media, you are contributing to this destruction. And honestly, there's part of me that just looks forward to the day that the whole thing collapses and we're done with it. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm Listen, like, it's it, all bubble gum and lollipops with you today. <laughs> 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 it'll be it'll feel good to say, I told you so. When that happens, it doesn't feel good. I mean, I've like I've had this conversation with you know the, the, my friends who've you know for ten years have been like, dude, you guys got to stop doing this. It's destroying the place, and you know nobody wants to hear that. And you know a lot of those same people circle back now and are like, oh yeah, dude, you're right. And I'm like, it doesn't feel good at all. It's shitty. It just sucks. So let me let me ask you another question. Um, you know we don't know if we're in a, in a bubble right now in terms of gear sales and sport growth. But let's say we're not. Let's say this is the vision of, of things to come for the next 10 years. And on a typical Saturday, you have 100 people running the Little White in the spring. We're there. We're there, for sure. You think 100 people run that river on a busy day? Mm, maybe not 100, but, but getting close. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I've like started avoiding the weekends down there just because it's just too much for me. Is it is is there going to be like? Are you going to have to expand out? Like it, head up into BC, get like past like Ashley zone, Ashley zone, like three or four drainages up. Like what's? I think mm-hmm. about it. I think about it a lot. I was actually just looking at some some property on on Redfin up there in that exact zone. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that all the time too. I mean, no joke. You know, I mean, I love it here. I love where I live, but there is no doubt that there's sometimes I'm like, it'd be nice to just have three or four people. That was it that you knew on the river. Simple, simple life. Yeah. Dude, that's so crazy. It's so hard for me to imagine that because I mean, it's been 20 years, but the last time I hiked into spirit, it was, I mean, it was like a goat path at best. I mean, you could get yeah, lost. Yeah, I mean, out. I remember, you know, when I first started running the Little White, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, it was, you know, we, we didn't even think it was possible to portage on River Right. Like, there was no trail over there or anything. It was just kind of kind of picking your way through. And, uh, yeah, I mean, time took its toll. And I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be, like, totally negative about it all the time. I mean, I think we we're, we have some you know, some lines of communication open with the hatchery folks and they're interested in, you know, helping us put some signs up there to kind of try to uh, improve hiker behavior. And I think it would make sense for us to go down there at some point and try and do some trail work and make things a little bit more sustainable down there. It's like, I do feel guilty that, you know, my reaction to this is just like, 
anger and horrible despair. It's like we, you know, there's some possibility to improve the situation, and you know, we should we should take the ball by the horns there. I but mean, it just breaks my heart so much. I just I struggle to do it, to be honest. I mean, back it up. <clears throat> what do you think about this expanded whitewater user group? Like, and that's not just whitewater. That's hikers, runners, bikers, everything. You know, more people outside. I mean, what do you what do you think the broader implications of that are? I don't know. I mean, I guess like personally, I'm. I don't know. I guess I mixed feelings. You know, I mean, I guess I you know I'm somebody who obviously highly values solitude and the outdoors and you know a natural experience out there. And I just like I don't I don't want to see other people. But at the same time, I mean, I think we it's good for it's good for those people that they're getting the opportunity to be outside and you know i think we definitely have a problem in this country with like equitable access to the outdoors and if there are people who have historically felt excluded from these opportunities and are getting the chance to go out and experience outdoors and you know that's good and i think you know outdoor alliance and you know lots of other organizations and you know our partners we have an opportunity and a responsibility to like help those people become, you know, advocates for, for the places that we all care about. So, I mean, I think it's, I guess it's our job to make something positive out of it, whether, you know, <laughs> my personal feelings are, are unalloyed positivity or not. So, I mean, dude, it could be what saves the country, man. Just people getting outside and just unplugging and whatever. Yeah, it couldn't hurt, right? But I will say, there, just from personal observation, it is time to start talking about leave no trace principles and just the way to totally. act and behave in the outdoors and have like a full re-education process to this new group <clears throat> that's coming out because totally. there's a big disconnect there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, totally. And ourselves too, you know, I mean, I think that there's things that we've like, you know, we've been able to get away with because there's not a ton of people, right? Like, I mean, we had this conversation in the past about, you know, whether it's time on some of these popular whitewater runs to like start packing out poop, you know, it's like, you know, there are runs where people camp at the same places over and over and over again. And it's like, you know, I just saw something on Instagram about NRS um, handing out like a, putting in a free wag bag station at the put in for the South Fork of the Salmon, right? And like that's an example somewhere where you know I don't think there's any regulations yet about packing out your shit, but like if we're all camping at the same two spots over and over again, there's more people going down there every year. It's probably time, you know, like thinking about like Flintstone Camp or even like Site Z and Wolf Track. It's like they're places that. You know, like there are rivers where people kind of tend to camp in a whole array of different spots, and there are other rivers where people tend to camp in like the exact same spots. And like, you know, we're starting to have an impact. Holy, what do you think, Weld? In terms of, <clears throat> I mean, just, just, you know, are you just gonna cash checks all day and whatever with this new user group or what's your, what's your thoughts on all these people this i mean just figure out where to put group. the money is kind of my immediate problem <laughs> i mean taxes and... <laughs> uh no i don't know i mean you know for, you know as i've mentioned before you know i mean from the industry side of things i mean the outdoor industry is seeing re- i mean it's been in a 
obsce- literally an obscenely good year for for most people in the outdoor industry. Um, but I think a lot of us are starting to get a little bit nervous now because, you know, is it a bubble? And if it's a bubble, a lot of people are gearing up production-wise and infrastructure-wise for economy that may not exist in a year, which is a big, big mistake to make. And uh, the other aspect is uh, inflation. Like, are we seeing – this is, you know, on a micro scale, the first signs of inflation, right? What is it about that? about inflation that concerns you as a business owner you know i want to discuss this but grace on the phone grace is taking a call right now on on another line it's so unbelievably distracting (laughs) it's his kid's orthodontist he told me a horrible story about his kid's orthodontist earlier today oh man yeah, I mean, I don't know what like what is your exposure to to inflation? Like, it seems like. Oh well, look who decided to join us. Sorry, I mean, guys. just borrowing I'm, costs. I'm talking to Eugene right now, and I'm trying to get oh. him li- lined up. Hang on, talking with our guests. You guys got the show. <laughs> um, I I mean, yeah, I mean, inflation's when I mean one of the. Key, key things about it. I mean, listen, I, I know there's people out there who know the economy, and there's been inflation hawks out there for for decades. I mean, since the 70s, and more often than not, they're dead wrong, right? People have been warning about inflation forever, and usually it's not the case. However, if there's ever an argument to be made for inflation in this country, it's now. I mean, the 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 demand and the amount of cash flowing around and people's you know desire to spend money right now is so high, and the supply chain is so limited. I mean, that's when you see inflation, right? Sure. I mean. Um, but again, I mean, what's what's the problem? Like, what what about that concerns you? Well, like, I think in a larger economic sense, you, you know, once again, if this is a bubble, right? Maybe maybe it's a bubble because people just aren't as interested in the outdoor industry as we think they are, right? And or it, it, you know, we're looking, you know, like Larry Summers is saying, this is we're we're headed for economic ruin, not ruin, but you know, very serious hard time economically in the next five years because interest rates are so low um, right now, and if we have inflation. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we have to, to raise, uh, uh, interest rates to, to help combat economic growth. I mean, a small interest rate okay, with the debt load of this country has would be a real problem. Right. So, I mean, another way to look at this is, you know, sometimes people are like, are you, are, is, are you an REI, right? Is IR an REI? And the answer is no. And because REI is sometimes technical gear and sometimes they're not in technical gear, right? But the problem with having an REI on board is that they come in and blow shit up in terms of sales, right? They say, we're going to order a ridiculous amount of these items and you do all these things to, to supply it, to, to meet these orders. And it could be gone in a year. And that really screws you up. It can really trip you up and really put you in a pickle economically, right? <clears throat> when, when, um, and I don't want to look a gift horse too much in the mouth. I mean, honestly, you know, there could be worse problems to have than ridiculous growth. But if it is a bubble, either because participation suddenly plummets in the next year or because uh, of the economy, then um, it's going to be double as bitter, right? When, when are, when are you going to have? How are you, as far as pricing? What's your thoughts on pricing? Like, for instance, we were just talking about this. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the way I mean, look, go to the Warner website right now. You can't order a single paddle. There's nothing available. Nothing. Right. Um, just for instance, and I want to pick on Warner. 
but you know, I mean, theoretically, Werner could charge whatever they want for a paddle. They could charge eight hundred dollars for a paddle, and they probably get it, right? I mean, it's sort of like housing right now. You know, like yeah. you know, if you if you're trying to enter the housing market right now, I mean, yeah. you know, there's seven cash offers on a house right now, and right. the price I mean, is that's just, inflation. Yeah, right? exactly. And so I'm wondering when that's going to hit the price of gear. Gear and there, I mean, there's, I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch it all play out. I think that. Yeah. I mean, the price, as I've argued, I do think the price of kayaking gear does need to increase, but in a healthy way that's commiserate to the correct market size and the economy of the, of the United States and other things that are involved here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry I missed that. Uh, that was Eugene. Um, he's having trouble getting his computer working, so we're probably going to have to patch him by phone, guys, just so you know. But Sorry about that. Didn't mean to miss that. Um, anyway, one of these days I'm going to have a producer over here on the side who's just like patching all this in and getting all this done. And I'm not like working three different dials to make this happen, but until then we're doing the Baba Booey of the hammer factor. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh man. What else? What else is going on? Um, I feel like I had a million things to talk about, but kind of drawing a blank. You got vaccinated yet, Grace? I have. Yes, I have. Uh, I went Pfizer. You got the you got the the budget one, I the got cheap the, one. I got the high end stuff. What about you, the Lewis? Low end. I did, man. I was I was in the post office in White Salmon, just like waiting to pick up my mail, and a lady comes in and is like, "We're vaccinating people next door. We have extra doses. Like, do you want the COVID vaccine?" And I was like, "Yes." And I, like ran next door. She's like, "We have three extra doses. I got to go find two more people." I was like, "Can I call Darby?" And she's like, "Yes." <laughs> and like we like got the vaccine. I'm so stoked. That was, like, we did I'm the like, same thing. They came over and got us at IR. That was how I it felt like. For me too. Which, this is Washington. I feel like right? I won the lottery, man. Just like I've not been that stoked with anything in ages. We have our office in Washington where they came over and got us. We got the we got the first round. But here in Oregon, where we live, nothing, nothing, nada. Yeah, it's crazy to the way that disparity is happening. You know, I want to say something about the vaccines because I joked mm-hmm. a lot about it and, mm-hmm. and, and I, and it was mm-hmm. joking, but I, I want everybody to know I was never joking about COVID or the seriousness of what's going on. This was a personal joke, particularly between myself and John Weld for calling me a flat earther because I was hesitant about this new vaccine that came out in a year that had never been blah, blah, blah. So, just know that that was what the joking was about. It was never, you know, it was never. Have meant you, to be. have you been getting this? Uh, I've been getting this like voice in my head that's been telling me to update my Microsoft uh, Office subscription. Have you guys been getting that? I don't know, but I can turn my car off on and off by just thinking about it now. <laughs> it's nuts, dude. <laughs> like it doesn't seem much like a side effect, but it's it just happens. <laughs> No, dude, I get my uh, second dose tomorrow, Pfizer. So, uh, mine is like two days before the Little White race, and they were the lady so, asked me, like, she's like, "Can you come back on the on the 15th? And I was like, I wanted to be like, oh, I don't want to do this right before the Little White race, but I was just like so grateful that I was just like, ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> Grace, I'm doing the math in my head here, and I'm I'm thinking, a month ago is when you got the first shot, right? Twenty days ago. Which would align almost perfectly with the day that you alleged you were lying about getting a shot, calling yourself a smoker. When in fact, the only way to get a shot at your age in North Carolina at that time was by lying about your smoking. 
Well, well, this opportunity, similar to the way you guys got yours, came in like two days after we recorded that show. Uh-huh. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> Look at All you. Right. You are the vaccine police, dude. I, I am going to make a vaccine police t-shirt for you no, in particular. I just a bunch of people, a bunch of people call me about the show. And we had a lot of people. I, I don't know if you guys had the same thing, but I had more people talk to me about the Benny Maher interview than probably any other guests we've had that I can remember. I don't know why that was, but people just seemed to be particularly intrigued by that. But I also had a lot of people mention they were like, Grace is lying about that, about the uh, not getting the vaccine. What? That's not true. Yeah. <laughs> that is totally true. You're making that up. Why do I do that? Anyway, did you guys hear anything about the Benny Maher interview? It was just me? I, look, I should talk to Grace because, Gelman, you don't really talk to anybody. <laughs> I did. I did. I had three or four people bring it up to me. Um, they said we did well, and they said it was a great interview and, and whatnot. What so, was it, but what's it about Benny that made him... What I got... I mean, granted, there is something different about him from an athlete than most athletes, right? I mean, yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with Benny. I mean, you know, he, he's one of those people that, you know, he he's magnetic, his personality, you know? Um, but I think a lot of it was his honest discussion about misgivings and the social dynamics and things like that, that I think that not to brag about the three of ours paddling career, but all those things were fresh in our minds so long ago that it's, we kind of take them for granted or something like that. Um, And I think that there's a lot of people that they're still, that's still, you know, it just resonated. So. Yeah, and Benny's just so thoughtful and articulate about all of it. I feel like I could listen to Benny talk about kayaking pretty much indefinitely. So could my wife, actually. She could actually listen to Benny talk about <laughs> names in the phone book, probably. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Anyway, you, I don't want to go too far down that. Guys, I don't want to push this too far down. Um, yeah, let's get, th- let's get Eugene on. I think that we need to get Eugene on. Is there any way... Lewis or Weld, you can do a little introduction here of Eugene while I try and patch him in because I got to do some fancy footwork here. I mean, I feel like Eugene is a paddler from my generation, more so certainly than you guys, because he was, I mean, he's been in the industry as long as we have, if not longer. I'll get some clarification on this here momentarily, but. I mean, he was around in Steamboat in the heyday of, like, Paddler Magazine. He was the editor of Paddler Magazine. He was must have been there for the, the beginning of Wave Sport, Bomber Gear. He was a fellow uh, Shipton-Tillman grant winner um, for an expedition in kayaking um, back in the early 90s like we were. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like he's 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 a paddler from, from, from my generation in a lot of ways. And I think our careers are, have a lot of similarities. I'm interested to really see what he has to say about this. So I'm doing my best. Oh, here. you wrote a book by the way, too. He wrote, he wrote a couple books, but in preparation for this interview, I reread one of his books. Um, brothers on the Bosch costs. Have you read that Gelman? No, it's well, is, do we have him on yet? Eugene, are you there? Sorry, guys, I'm having to uh, use a phone here to to get him in. 
Okay, here we go. I think we're calling right now. <clears throat> Stand by, Hammer Factor Nation. Hello? Eugene, yep. are you there? Yep. Yo, man, how are you? All right. Welcome to the Hammer Factor, Eugene. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, we have our special guest here, Eugene Buchanan. He's one of the most storied and well-traveled veteran expeditionists of our time, an accomplished author, accomplished publisher, and now founder of PaddlingLife.com. And now a guest on the Hammer Factor. A real feather in your cap. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the biggest feather of the, the whole career, probably, right there. So, Eugene, I was just telling Geltman, just bef yep. in preparation for this, I reread your Brothers on the Boschkos book. Uh-huh. Oh, and thanks, thanks for getting through it a second time. It, listen, it was really good. <laughs> and I would advise... Uh, anyone out there who's interested in a really well-written kayaking book and there's some there's some garbage out there to be sure but this is not mm -hmm. doesn't fall into that category it's a great story about kayaking expeditions kind of the way they used to be in the not so distant past right before the internet and social media and any real beta and really at a time when you know the world felt kind of wide open for exploration in a kayak it doesn't feel quite the same way anymore but but at that time, it just felt like you could travel all over the world and just see mo the most remote, amazing places for the first time. Certainly, it was the first time as a Westerner, like Eugene did on this river. But anyway, well, worth a read. I appreciate, I appreciate you guys giving it a read. Um, and, and I kind of wish uh, we would have been in kayaks, actually. You know, we were in, we'll probably get into that a little later. We were in, you know, homemade rafts. I would have much rather been in my uh, kayak for that thing, which a lot of people have since gone there in kayaks and it sounds you know sounds like an awesome kayak run yeah i mean yeah without i mean to make a long story short you guys spent a month on that river right and the whole time i'm reading the book i'm thinking geez we could have done this in a couple of days in kayaks <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> 30, yeah no. 30 kilometers yeah. right <laughs> yeah especially that main the main gorge is like 30 kilometers you know that's where the main class five stuff is and i mean we were kind of doing it latvian style um Right. You know, which meant we had to go at their pace and, you know, the equipment was kind of, kind of beat. Uh, and that's why the whole time we were wishing we had our kayak. You're very diplomatic about it in the book, but let's, let's, let's take a step back for a second. I mean, that book took cool. place in 1992, yep. right? Yeah. Um, when did you, when did you start to paddle? I mean, what was your introduction to paddle sports? In, um, in well, I grew, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. Uh, what Newsweek tagged as where the hip meet the trip. Uh, <laughs> I grew up kind of climbing and skiing and uh, all that other boulder stuff. We'd hop uh, in inner tubes on Boulder Creek, you know, and get our butts kicked and tailbones bruised and all that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, my parents, you know, they took us on a couple commercial raft trips early on in my days. You know, we did the Yampa, I think when I was in fourth or fifth grade, did Cataract Canyon in high school. Um, you know, that sort of thing. I really didn't get into boating too much until uh, college. Um, I went to uh, went to school at Colorado College in Colorado Springs and started raft guiding a couple summers, you know, in the Arkansas. What, what year would that be? You know, that would have been, you know, mid, mid to early 80s. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm 58 now. I'd actually just, just turned a whopping 58 yesterday. 
Thank you Happy birthday. Um, yeah, thanks, man. Um, uh, so, you know, it's been a couple summers raft guiding uh, on the Arkansas, you know, outside of Salida and all, and, uh, and up in Alaska. And that's where I kind of first got into uh, kayaking was, uh, um, you know, my ship, my first boat was a holoform, you know, just this mm-hmm. black, massive thing you could fry an egg on. I remember mm-hmm. we did Gates of the Door with a bunch of the raft guides. And, you know, one, one guy got just worked and held half mile and sold all his equipment at the end. <laughs> yeah, take out. And like for a hundred bucks, I picked up a skirt, life jacket, paddle, helmet, and giant black plastic holoform kayak for a hundred bucks. I was like, yeah, I'll take it. Hmm, uh, and that was, so then, and then I graduated to a short boat, you know, a, a perception mirage after that, which I bought up in Alaska. Um, and I, I used to work a river up there, uh, I mean, a couple of them down in the southeast, but also outside of Anchorage um, on the Eagle and the Matanuska and that sort of thing. And that water is so cold up there. You know, it's just like 40 degrees and, you know, no dry tops in or anything. So I think that's kind of helped me nail my role a little bit. A couple of swims up there and you realize you don't want to do that again. <laughs> and at some point you, I mean, you moved back to Steamboat and you transitioned into the industry, right? I mean, you became editor of Paddling Magazine, yeah so, what, Paddler. yeah, so what I... Um, Paddler Magazine. Yeah, Paddler was called back in the day. So, I mean, after Alaska, I was going to stay up there and keep kind of guiding the next season. You know, right my first... Uh, when I graduated college, the same day I graduated, I flew up to Alaska to, man- to manage this, these rafting operations for um, Alaska Travel Adventures. And I was going to stay up there, but then a buddy got a permit for the Grand in November, and he said, uh, hey, dude, can you come down and help me run this thing? So I... Drove down back to the lower 48, helped them put the a trip down the Grand together. Um, and then after that, I was a big skier at the time, so I moved to Telluride since that was kind of right near the takeout of the Grand. I uh, lived there for a couple of years, kept boating, uh, moved back to Boulder for a bit after that. Uh, kind of took a you know real job working in Denver for the Denver, Profe- uh, Denver Business Journal. Um, and it's actually that time when I started kind of get really getting into boating pretty hard. And um, I remember using up all of my vacation time at this uh, business newspaper um, boating. You know, I, I had a chance to go down to Ecuador and join this guy on like he needed a kind of class five safety boater slash journalist for some. And this was the guy who was the guy who first ran the Quijote down in Ecuador. So he was kind of assessing its commercial feasibility. So they brought me down there for that. And then, you know, I got back to work after that trip was awesome. Another chance came up to go down to Peru and I'd used up all my vacation time. And uh, so I, I bailed on the, the Denver Business Journal job and realized I'd much rather spend my time kind of writing about things I liked rather than commercial real estate and foreclosures and that sort of thing. Um, and then I started freelancing more. Uh, and I started freelancing for a magazine called River Runner which mm-hmm. is kind of the early predecessor, you know, one of the early print mags in the whole uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some guy, some entrepreneur out in California bought up, bought this publishing company, and it included River Runner in it, but he bought it for another magazine that was called, for a trade magazine that was called Avocado Grower or something like that. <laughs> and, it, and it had River Runner with it. He didn't know what mm-hmm. to do with it. So then he bought up a couple other super small kind of paddling magazines, one called uh, Canoe Sport Journal, one called Canadian Paddler. Uh, and he rolled those all into one magazine called Paddler. So then he needed an editor for it. So he got in touch with me somehow. And um, 
Actually, by then I was working uh, as the media director for the World Pro Mogul Tour, a big ski tour. And we had an event out in Mammoth, uh, California. So I went out there at uh, Oceanside, California, where he was based and, you know, interviewed for the job and got it. And he let me, you know, run it out of Colorado. So that was kind of the foundation of how Paddler got its start. So, so what year, what year, of, what year did Paddler like, launch? What year did you take charge? Like I took charge of that, I think, in 91. Right. Um, and I think he had started it kind of in 90 and kind of cobbled it together be- until I got there. And then when I had it, my wife and I were living in Boulder at the time. And we realized, you know, man, let's move back to Mountain Town. Um, I would have loved to go to Telluride, but it's not really a paddling town. So kind of, you know, we looked at all the, you know, some of the classic paddling towns around the West, you know, narrowed it down to kind of Durango or Steamboat in Colorado. You know, Salida was a little podunk back then. You know, not a whole lot going on. So my wife wasn't that psyched on Salida. You know, we looked at Jackson and Ben. Uh, and then kind of chose Steamboat just because it was close to the front range where my wife's twin was living at the time. My family was there. I had to be traveling quite a bit out of Denver. Uh, so Steamboat was pretty good. It had the Yampa going right through town. And, and at the time, Wave Sport was based here. So it had a pretty vi- vibrant, you know, kayaking community uh sherry griffith adventures got their start here at drift adventures did it has a pretty good you know river running history here so let's just follow the throws paddler magazine for a bit because this mm-hmm. is one of the i mean one of the, the aspects of your career that's that's that's, that's i find it be interesting so it's a print magazine right and paddler paddler magazine exists for how many years how long did you would did was it was i was i yeah so i ran it here for probably 15 16 years from like 92 to 2007 or 8 right. um this guy uh this guy's name was Jim Ellis who bought it initially and, and started it um and everyone was spread out all over the place the design was in Boise the ad sale guy was in San Fran the publishing office was in Southern Cal and I was out here uh then he sold it to the uh, American Canoe Association in like 97 right uh so then I, I had a piece of it, and so did the ACA. And then we ran it as kind of a benefit. It went out, went out as a benefit to their members that whole time, right? Uh, which is pretty good because they had, you know, 30,000 members that all got the magazine. So it was a kind of built-in subscriber base, which mm-hmm. was great, you know, great for the advertising side of things. Um, and then we moved, kind of made Steamboat the, the main headquarters for it, kind of the publishing offices. So we brought, you know, ad sales in-house, design in-house, and the editorial mm-hmm team in-house here um which uh yeah which worked out great so i think at our peak we had probably nine or ten employees here and then you know we helped subsidize some of the hca's operations out in dc as well so um, let's take a look at i mean let's take a look at like the, the the print media from say 2007 to present i mean now we have you know scott mcgregor and his mm-hmm. his collection of titles um obviously uh tune does kayak session Yep. But it's a far cry from what it was maybe in 1999. I mean, when did you see the writing on the wall for a huge shift in, in print media? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really good question. Um, you know, luckily, you know, when I ran it, you could almost do no wrong. So it's no real, you know, credit or pat on the back to me by any by any means. It's like, you know, like the windsurfing industry. There used to be, you know, four windsurfing magazines back in the late 80s. Um and then, you know, there's none now, you know, they all fills it out. It's, uh, I mean, back in those days, it was pretty easy to create content for these niche sports 
because no one was creating their own content yet. Mm-hmm. You know, no one had thought about that. Um, you know, nowadays you got all these, you know, companies like Patagonia, the North Face, even the endemic ones in paddle sports, you know, the majority of their marketing budgets are going to creating their own content, you know, paying their ambassadors and athletes to uh, create videos, stories for their own blogs, that sort of thing. They don't really need these third-party uh you know, publishing houses or magazines to do it anymore. But I would say, I mean, I remember when we got our first website, even for Padler, you know, that was back in like, you know, the late nineties or whatever. It's like, Whoa, we got a website. Um, you know, that was pretty cutting edge back then. Um, Little did you know, that would be the beginning of the end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No one did that. So, uh, um, you know, and at our heyday, I mean, we were busy chasing all the niches too. We came out with a magazine called kayak for a while. That was more just whitewater-based. I remember that, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, and that lasted, you know, all of two or three years or whatever. That was just too small of a market to kind of chase. Um, but then, you know, right around, you know, the Internet started taking over. People's ad dollars started going to that instead of print. Uh, then right around then, you know, was the big the big crash in kind of 08, 09, which really affected people's ad buys for a while. And also another, another demise of that uh, – whole scenario was just uh, the industry consolidation is right around then, you know, before Confluence started gobbling up all of its brands, you know, all those, all those companies were separate companies, Perception, Dagger, Wavesport, Wilderness Systems, all those guys would do two page double truck ad campaigns with us. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you got a company like Confluence buying them and they're doing one ad for, for all, you know, seven of those companies where we used to have seven spreads. So you combine that industry consolidation with the rise of the internet, with the market crash, um, you know, and it was kind of easy to see, you know, the writing on the wall for the print industry. Um, There was, you know, one other magazine was out there uh, that I used to, it was real similar to ours, uh, Rock and Ice, and it was run by a guy named Dwayne Raleigh uh, out of Carbondale. And him and I bounced ideas off each other all the time because, we were each kind of these independently owned niche magazines in an equally sized market. You know, the climbing industry and paddling industries were pretty similarly sized. And each of us had uh, a main competitor that was owned by a magazine conglomerate. You know, Climbing Magazine was owned by a, a big company that owned a bunch of other titles, as was our main competitor at the time, Canoe and Kayak Magazine. Right. Um, you know, which, which used to be Canoe Magazine. And then, you know, they stayed canoe only as far as long as they could until they realized canoeing was kind of uh, somewhat of a sinking industry. And they decided to embrace, you know, the kayak side of things as well. So, I mean, do you think, I mean, there's so much to get to here, but do you think that, you know, just in reading your book, it really made me think about this in terms of, you know, you did a kayak trip in the 1990s and you turned around and wrote a 250 page book about it. Right. And um, I mean, really documented the trip and really put a lot of work into documenting this trip. And then we sort of transitioned from that kind of a era of storytelling to maybe, you know, the magazines. We had a, you know, a really robust print magazine um, environment in the paddle sports in the, in the late nineties and early two thousands and LVM came around where we were doing, you know, John and, and Daniel mm-hmm. and company were doing 30 minute, 45 minute videos. And it's kind of devolved in my way, in my opinion, down to like these 15 second clips on, on Instagram where an entire person's right. trip is summed up in a waterfall. Um, right, right. 
Um, do you think things are being lost as we're as we're headed this direction, or do you think that community, just because of the sheer volume of content, is still as vibrant as ever? You know, it's interesting. It's uh, kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I, I I do to a degree because you just can't, you know, get the details and the the smell and the feel and all that of a of a, a great trip. And people are doing awesome trips these days still. Indeed, um, yeah. But you, but you no one seems to be documenting this stuff the way that's satisfying anymore. You know, in my opinion. Yeah, you just an Instagram thing, a 15-second Instagram Insta clip. You know, you're just. I mean, sure, it's awesome, and there's a ton more of them. You're almost getting more exposure for the industry and the sport, but it's just not going near as deep. Um, you know, and on that Russia trip we did, you know, I, I did that trip right after I started with the magazine, so I knew I was going to do a magazine story on it. Right. I kind of, you know, took took detailed notes and went there knowing, all right, I got to earn my keep. I can't just start this job and be gone for seven weeks and not come home with anything to show for it. Um, so I kind of, you know, took pretty good notes, and I always knew that, it was a much bigger, bigger story to tell than you could get across in a three or 4,000 word magazine story. Right. Um, but yeah, but you look at all these different outlets out there right now. Yeah. No one's doing as deep a dive on that sort of thing. I don't think, you know, one thing Eugene that I've noticed as far as publishing, and it's the same if you're publishing a DVD or a magazine or whatnot, there is, you had your article per se, and then you know you broke it down, and this is all the steps that you had to take before you actually sent something to print. Because once it went to the printer, it was printed, it was in stone, you know. So there was fact checking, there was all kinds of things that went into that process before you actually made that product. But now, if you have a typo or misspell someone's name or something like that. You just simply like go back in and re-edit it or change it. And I feel like a lot of the, um, I don't want to say legitimacy, but there's just a lot of things that come out in the digital publishing platform that just aren't true or they're misrepresentative because they were never caught by the editing team and they never had that pressure before you wrote that big check to the printer to get your your actual magazine made have you noticed or, or seen anything like that in the industry yeah and it's it, it is kind of a shame because you know a lot of thought process you know goes into every issue you put out in print you know we used to come out with six issues of paddler a year and you know you can only get so much late breaking news in that you know you're working on like a three-month editorial uh, you know, deadline. So if something big happens, you know, the earliest you could get it out means you got to like pull something else out that you had already laid out and squish, you know, and squeeze this in last minute. But a lot of care went into it. It's every photo you select, every, you know, you're, you're fact checking everything. Cause yeah, you're right. Once you print it, it's, it's, it's done. You're not changing it, you know, and you can, you know, of course you can always go run corrections afterwards. Uh, but that, that doesn't really do it. So, um, yeah, the game has changed uh, quite a bit. Um, and, you know, and we still, you know, we'll probably get to this in a little bit. I mean, I'm running a website now as well called Paddling Life and something like that. You can go, you can get, you know, late-breaking stuff up there right away. Uh, case in point is, you know, we just did a story on, uh, you know, Rafael Gallo passing away. I don't know if you know him. Uh, you know, he's one of the big kind of put Costa Rica rafting on the map. You know, he runs Rio's Tropicales or did. So he just went. He just passed away, unfortunately. So we were able to get a story up, you know, that same day. And, you know, did as much fact-checking as we could, um, you know, con confirmed as much as we could, and then, you know, went with it. And then we can always go back and, 
and tighten it up. What do you think about print media nowadays? Is it on the way out or is it going to, you know, is it going to find a way through and are we going to have a revival of print media? I mean, I look at what Toon's doing and he still seems to be going as strong as he ever has. Yeah, no, and I, you know, and I've known Toon forever, ever since, you know, they started uh, coming out with theirs, you know, what I, what Scott's doing with Rapid is great. I mean, hats on to those guys. And I hope, I hope it keeps going because I love print. I'm a print guy. Um, but the problem with print, it's, uh, as a kind of a publishing uh, colleague told me once is, you know, the main problem with it is, is your, uh, your post office needs to get paid today for mailing the, mailing the issues out. Um, your printer needs to get paid net 30 and your advertisers don't pay till net 60. And <laughs> Amen. So, you, you, so you, yeah. And so you multiply that, you carry that out by 10 years. That's not a winning formula for a business model, uh-huh. you know, and, and then that's lots of if those advertisers even pay you net 60. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of a, a, and then you look at all the, uh, environmental footprint costs, the shipping, you know, the trees, the forest, the, all that, the carbon footprint that goes into it compared to getting, you know, the same thing across, uh, digitally. Um, and it's hard to say, but I tell you, there's nothing, you know, in my opinion, I, I certainly love sitting down on a, you know, a couch or a lazy boy or whatever, and, you know, and flipping through a mag and, uh, you know, and it's interesting to look at, you've probably caught wind of all the recent, you know, uh, media acquisitions that uh, Pocket Outdoor Media has been making out of Boulder. Um, you know, first they picked up, well, first, you know, Canoe and Kayak and Surfer and uh, Bike and Powder and all those guys got sold to American Media, you know, which owns Men's Journal. The Men's Journal comes in and kind of scraps all those titles and then keeps the URLs and then they scrap the URLs now all the website stuff goes straight to men's journal and i do a fair amount of writing for men's journal still but anything i write on the paddling side now goes straight to men's journal not to canoe and kayak and so it's tough because those guys aren't covering the niche stories anymore like they don't care about you know who won the green race or whatever or you know dane jackson winning uh you know another world freestyle champ or whatever uh but the stories you do get on there are now going to men's, men's, men's journal's audience, which is massive. So the sport is reaching a heck of a lot of people, uh, but just kind of the niche side isn't getting covered as much. Yeah, which I... is why it's so important. To, why it's so important to have guys like Toon uh, and Scott out there, you know, still covering that, and even even what we can do with paddling life. Yeah, I, you know, there's huge benefits to digital media and the digital platforms as far as delivering content. But two things that I think are negative are number one, the fact checking and just the work that went into something before it was actually published physically um, was pretty deep. And And number two, and this is, I don't know how to fix this, but credit is hardly ever given nowadays. People will take a picture or take a video and move it around. And, you know, before in Paddler Magazine, I'm sure before you ever published anyone's photo or anything like that, you know, credit was certainly stamped along with it. And, you know, those kind of things have really been lost in the digital age. I don't know if you've noticed that, but uh, out of all... Yeah, no, and I have it. And we try to pay... Pay, pay special attention to that for what we run. And a lot of times, you know, I mean, budgets are tight everywhere. So for photos, you know, we might go to an outfitter or something, you know, go to oars or go to a drift or go to someone and, and ask them, hey, we need a shot of the Klamath. You know, do you guys have one? We'll credit you. You know, and try to, you know, I, unfortunately we have to, 
you know, if we can get a free shot, we'll use it. You know, that, that still kind of illustrates the story. You know, we'll pay photographers as well. But, you know, it's tough for them. But I remember in the early days, you know, a photographer would send us in a, uh, an envelope of uh, slides, you know, maybe we'd get 150 slides from them, like six different sheets of 20 slides on a sheet. And, uh, you know, each one valued at 1500 bucks a piece you know, for, for loss or uh, damage or anything like that. And we're just like, oh, my God, right? You know, here we are. They sent this package to us, and they're <laughs> expecting it to be worth 20 grand. You know, we got files of these things because we're not sure what we're going to use when. So in one sense, you know, it's, it's a lot easier working with digital photos, but I appreciate, you know, yeah, what you brought up with that because a lot of people do do that. They can, they can grab it, and it's, and it's also with copy, too, um, you know, not just photos. So, yeah, and I, I don't necessarily uh, mean paying for it. I just mean giving the credit. Mm -hmm. You know, I think. Right, I mean, right, Grace. Right. I think a lot of what you're speaking about is is more is a lot of times has to do with the fact that everybody's a content creator now, right? Any Yahoo can make a website and start putting up whatever thoughts come into their head without any kind of structure or not knowing the, you know, <laughs> having even looked at a copy of Strunk and White before, or you know how right, to right. how to properly credit a photo. And, and, just, and but it's not just people. It's brands. It's a, it's 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 well. Uh, and the it's thing a problem. Is, this conversation is Philip Curry. You know, he was one of the people who asked me about about uh, about Benny Marr. We're just talking about team athletes in general. And the general assumption is out there is that your team is going to create content for you. And one of my arguments was is that sometimes works, but sometimes your team athletes. I mean, creating written content, whatever, is not their strong point. Exactly. Right? They're it, under obligation to do it, this. It's like when and they all push the stuff out, and you're like, oh Jesus, this isn't. Exactly. This working. <laughs> it's like when it's like when blogging came about, and the and the and the president of the company would tell the marketing guy, "Hey, we we got a blog now, blog." Well, it's not that easy. You know what I mean, just because you yeah. can't do it doesn't mean it's going to have an impact. You know. Yeah. Right. Well, and I tell you, and it takes time. I mean, like, and I come to it from the print side. I mean, I've, I mean, I've kind of, I love kayaking and paddling, but you know, my whole my career has been writing and editing, you know, because the editor of the paper and Telluride worked in Denver for all this stuff. And I've, so I come to it from that background and I've had a passion for both of them, for both writing and paddling. And so I've kind of, I hope at least, you know, lent that degree of credence to it a little bit and, and doing that. And anything we put up on the site, you know, has been through our filters uh, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I try to, I try to adhere to that, but it's so quick. It's so easy to see people, putting stuff up there quick and quick and easy, you know, that, that doesn't pass the mustard. I just can't believe that the hammer factor is, is uh, bemoaning the demise of fact checking. That's not our usual MO here. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. We transcend, we transcend. Fact -checking. We are the facts. <laughs> Can we take a step back here and go? To, What's to your go paddle length and feather? Can we just get this out of the way, Eugene, before we yeah, get into anything yeah. else? Now that's, that's a, that's something we can fact check. Um, well, so I'm, I paddle. I do use about a 197 uh, Werner bent shaft. Uh, I think it's got a 30, 30 on it. I busted my trusty one last year. I broke the blade of it after like 15 years and tried to send it back, you know, even to get it repaired. Well, thanks for coming yeah, on, Eugene. Uh, this has been great. Yeah, we'll talk to you <laughs> later, bud. This up. Exactly, yeah. Uh, listen, listen, let's take a step back to Steamboat Springs, 1995, right? You have Wave Sport, you have Bomber Gear. The sport is about to detonate, right? Uh, mm -hmm. 
I mean, do you feel like this was the heyday of paddle sports and we've just been in constant decline since then, or are things getting better? You know, I'd say, you know, into, I, I'd say maybe business-wise, the, the late 90s was probably the heyday of it. Um, uh, I mean, I'm picturing you, know, you that, there's... There's parties. You're probably with women on gigantic piles of cash and steamboats from the from printing Paddler magazine. Bomb and Fish Creek, laps on laps, oh, and yeah. yellow yeah, or rosy yeah. sunglasses everywhere. Woo! Right. Yeah. No, there's a lot of swag all over the place. Uh, right. Coming, you know. I remember we held a couple of big events here. You know, we held a couple of uh, Fish Creek races, and we actually did a, an event here that was a combo. You know, race Fish Creek all the way down to the sea hole where you hop in your uh, free play boat and then you do a big freestyle event. So it kind of, you know, rewarded kind of extreme racing plus freestyle stuff. So we had some, uh, that was a pretty cool allure. And that was kind of before, before the Teva games, even before the GoPro games. And we all, we always held that event right around the same time as the Teva games. So we could get those guys who are here for that, that had a lot bigger perks than we could muster and get them up here for that. So, uh, but it was good, yeah, and, and having Wavesport here uh, was, was huge, you know, because they had such a big draw, and so many people came under, under its fold when Chan was running it. And, you know, everyone from EJ to Drevo to, uh, I mean, a lot of, it touched a lot of people, a lot of the, the young women paddlers, uh, you know, Erica Mitchell, Ta- the, you know, Tanya, all those gals. So it was a pretty cool, vibrant uh, scene up here. And then, of course, you know, when they, they got bought, I think he sold it, sold Wavesport in like the late 90s mm-hmm. um and then you know moved it to now now the Wavesport factory's growing dope you know so it's all it's all just you know full circle um, <laughs> right. yeah no it's, it's totally because I remember it's kind of a funny story when we got up here you know Chan was doing a little bit of that on the side and he got busted for it and uh I can say that because he he passed away R.I.P. Chan but um he got busted for it so we kind of joke that you know all wave sport boats you know weighed like 32 pounds one ounce or something <laughs> like that <laughs> uh, but uh yeah he still held, had that building and you know they he uh, le- leased it out to uh some dope growers but so yeah, let's it, talk was, about... it was a great it was a great scene here let's talk about your expeditions so you did that you did the trip in russia and then you did another one on the kolka what, what were some of the other highlights was the kolka help did you get any sponsorship money from polar tech or shipton tillman for the kolka trip no we didn't kolka was all kind of organized by this uh polish guy this uh yurik mahershik and mm-hmm. he was one of this uh and actually there's a big documentary coming out um called uh, godspeed los polacos is coming out um this this summer and it got uh it got into the Boulder Film Fest and that sort of thing. So it's, that was this group of Polish guys in the late 80s who came out to the, the States and Central America and did, you know, a two-year river running rampage. And they ran first ascents on the Pacuare, the Usamacinta, the Quijos, all this stuff. And they ended with the Kolka. Um, and on that trip was like Piotr Chemielinski, who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's uh, running the Amazon fame. Um, and... But the top 15 miles of it had never been done because it's just too steep. It's like it drops like, you know, 2,800 vert and like 14 miles or something. And so they put in below that section. It's called the Cruz del Condor, that canyon. So I got a call from this guy, Yurik, and he goes, you know, Eugene, Eugene, we want to go back to Coca to do a top part of canyon. It's never been done before. It's final feather and cap. You know, you must come down with us. Um, and this was the same guy that actually 
brought me down to Ecuador all those years before uh, to join him on the Quijote. So, uh, yeah, so I decided to kind of join those guys. And then he sent me some pictures of it. And I saw photos of the canyon. I was like, and they were planning on just canyoneering it and, uh, you know, rappelling and hiking along the shore. And I was like, well, hell, I'd rather be in my kayak down there than, than doing that. So I got him to ship me down uh, a kayak. Um, I think I got in touch with Piranha, and they, they, they shipped down a, a medium burn down there. But then, then I had the chance to go to the Olympics in Beijing to kind of help the announcers over there. So I, uh, I called Europe back and said, yeah, I don't think I can go. I got this chance to work for NBC. I got to take that. So he called me back and said, Eugene, Eugene, we figured it out. You know, we, we, we pushed trip back four weeks. You know, you fly straight from Beijing, but you must sleep on the plane. <laughs> so it's Beijing. I did that. I flew. It's the wackiest pudding I've ever had in my life. I flew from Beijing to, El- to Beijing to San Fran to L.A. to Lima to Arequipa, where some guy picked me up at like five in the morning to drive across the Altiplano to the put-in oh, where ropes that. were set up for this like yeah, so ropes are set up for this like 200 foot rappel down to the canyon bottom where these guys have been for four days getting the trip together. I literally landed like five feet away from my kayak and then put in with these poles <laughs> to go do this section. So That's I went badass. from like, uh, I went from Chinese to English to Spanish to Polish all in like one day, you know, and then and then put in and then we encountered this rival team down there that was funded by Chimelinski. This guy, Europe's kind of rival from their earlier trip way back when, you know, and so we were playing, trying to catch these guys the whole way. And, and the only reason I wrote that book, Comrades on the Coca, that one's called, is because I came up with the name of it. I was like, <laughs> all right, as a sequel to Brothers on the Boschkow. So I was like, all right, how can you not write that one? You got to write that one. <laughs> you get a name. So, so put that we, together. That one is a little, that was a little harder to write. So there's only like a seven day trip, you know, without ruining the story. You know, we we didn't finish. We ended up having to hike out, and we passed the other team and hooked up with them, and yada yada. But uh, so I was able to kind of weave in some of my other South America trips and that sort of thing into that one. But um, it was a little little more difficult. It's harder to turn a you know a seven day expedition into a book than it is something like the Bosch House, which was had had a, you know a lot more color and a lot longer trip. In one of the most awesome, yeah, yeah. One Sorry. of the most awesome aspects. We're about to say this. I bet is uh, aspect of the book is how hardcore the Russian. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. Russians are easy to write about. Write about. They are just <laughs> tough nails. These guys. I mean, they really put this yes. this trip together. I mean, on a shoestring, and they travel as light as you could possibly imagine. Yeah, it is amazing what these guys do. You know, they make everything themselves. They're like, they have no money either. So their life jackets are made of soccer balls. Their rafts are made of germ warfare suits. Um, their tents are made of army parachutes. You know, we showed up on that with our kayaking, you know, our kayaking life jackets, um, you know, rain gear, you know, tents from uh, Big Agnes. I mean, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And yeah, it's, uh, um, and, and, it was, and the Polka, though, was kind of similar because they're Eastern Euros also. I mean, it was these Polish. Mm-hmm. The poles are pretty good hard sufferers also. Um, I mean, they're kind of every bit as tough as, as the Russians and as far as suffering. It makes makes us me seem just like, you know, pretty candy-ass as far as what these guys are used to going to. You, so you guys I, probably that. I want to ask you a question. This is If you listen to the show, you know this is sort of a reoccurring theme for me, but I feel like 
in terms of hardcore kayak expeditioning, something, or probably, probably exploration in general, something's been lost in the internet era that will never be retrieved again. You know, the idea that you can go someplace and just have no idea where you're going or where you're going to end up, those those days are gone unless you're willf- willfully ignorant. No Google Earth. Such, no, you know. Right, and I think, you know, I think you guys, if, if I read correctly in the book, I think you guys referred a lot, you used, uh, like, tactical pilot charts for your maps, which are notoriously vague <laughs> right, I mean, right, just, right just big white areas on the map you're like well we think the river is going to go here but that's as much as you know and the, the mountains are thought not to exceed 5,000 feet that would be your entire beta for that, that river trip right yeah it was re- yeah it was really hard to get the and we you know we won the grant we won the Shipton Tillman grant for uh, um, a river that you know we had heard about from someone called the uh, uh, called the Kalar and mm-hmm. uh and, when, and then we got out there, and these, these Russians said, no, 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 you guys don't want to go there. You know, come with us on Rio River. And there was just, you know, no no information at all. Um, right. And it turned out the river we, we had shoot, shot for was a mosquito-infested bog. You know, they're like, hey, there's a reason nobody goes there. Because <laughs> um, it's just, you know, a nightmare. Now it's, like, so easy. You look at what guys are doing these days, um, you know, like, like Sixberry and uh, – you know, all, uh, Evan and all those guys, they, they can, you can go kind of get a lot of beta on, you know, what, what it's like. And even doing, even when we did that Akolka trip, you know, we knew the thing dropped, you know, 2,800 vert, but we weren't quite sure just when and where that vert was going to show up. You know, now you can pinpoint that a heck of a lot easier. Oh, yeah. You can tell which side of the river you need to scout on and what your portage options are and escape routes yeah. and... And call if you need help, right? <laughs> and get a sat phone yeah, yeah. and get someone to get, come get you eventually, right? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. How did you fund all these trips, Eugene? Yeah, that's a good, very good question. I mean, I was lucky because I've been in the media side of things, so that always helps. You know, you're able to, uh, you know, work with uh, a tourism board or an airline. Um, and, you know, like on that Russia trip, you know, we got the grant from uh, Gore-Tex for it. But then once you get that, you can parlay that. You get pretty good at crafting your sponsorship pitch. Um, so we got, you know, thin, thin air to fly us over there, you know, on the airline side. Um, for a while when I was running a magazine, I was kind of lucky because my wife worked for the airline so we could get cheap tickets. And once we got over to a place, whether it was Africa or Chile or wherever, you could hook up with local boaters or an outfitter, you know, to get your equipment and that sort of thing, and get some shuttle help, uh, uh, and that sort of thing. Like we did a, I did a trip down to, uh, you know, Australia, and, and then the Franklin River in Tasmania, where it's relatively, it was, at the time at least, it was relatively easy to get those tourism boards on board with you coming there to do a story in a U.S. magazine, because they didn't have any other ways to reach that market. And if I could get there, and then, you know, have kind of a, a guaranteed story for them, then uh, they were more than most of them are more than willing to kind of help lend support. Um, so, and, I, and, I, and in a way, I think that's what, you know, people still need to kind of, uh, kind of do today. You got to show, show, show these people, you know, what they're going to get out of it, you know, whether it's a sponsor or, you know, or a tourism board or whatever, which means you have to kind of be somewhat media savvy. Yeah. Indeed. You mentioned in your book that you were the first paddle sport paddling or kayaking shipped in Tillman Grant award winner and i was getting ready to call you out on that because i thought we might have beat you to it 
So I had to go to AW American Whitewater and look it up because I know I remember writing an article for AW about it, and turns out you were right. We got it the next year. So because yours was the next year, right? Yeah, we got it the next year. Yeah, what? And what was yours for again? We went to uh, we crossed uh, Baffin Island with that one. Oh right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, and then, and then yeah. a couple years later, we went. We, we did the same thing in Borneo. Mm-hmm. With Shipton again, or uh, the Shipton Tillman, or I can't. Honestly, this is embarrassing to say. I can't remember. I know we won. I know we won the Polar Tech Performance Challenge grant for both of them, and I know we won Shipton Tillman for at least one, but I can't remember the other. Right. I think Mark Rubron wasn't he the character who, who from Gore-Tex used to run that grant? Yeah. Yep. And yeah. I'm pretty sure that grant is still going. Um, oh wow! But uh, I'm not sure. But you know, for people that are uh, people that are other, you know, trying to get out and do similar things, there's, you know, a fair amount of grants still out there, um, you know, that people can go after. You know, and there's this, this guy Jeff Blumenfeld. He's a, a member of the Explorers Club. Also, he wrote a book on, you know, how to get sponsored. Um, so it's not a bad. If, if someone's out there looking for, you know, like, how can I get some funding for? I got this great idea. You know, that's not a bad avenue to go through. He's got uh, some pretty good ideas in there as well. Um, I, and I would say, you know, you know, being coming from a writing and edit, editing background and stuff, you know, it comes down to crafting a good pitch and being able to sell these guys and showing them that you're, you know, you can communicate effectively and, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, reaching out to endemic companies, you know, like NRS, Coca-Cola, whoever else is out there endemically sponsoring and supporting that sort of thing. As well as the non-endemic ones, the bigger ones. Huh. Um, you know what's interesting too is a lot of you know supporting a beneficiary is always a pretty good angle as well. Um, you know you get a lot of these you know people traversing you know Canada in a canoe or or whatever raising raising awareness for something or or giving it to a certain uh, nonprofit um, that goes a long way as well. So let me ask you, Eugene, what? What brought you to paddling life? You know, after all of these times in publication and whatnot, what uh, what it at fifty five or 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 whatever? What, when did what made you? What was the uh, what was the catalyst for for turning paddling life I, on? I think the main catalyst was is you know I, I knew I was leaving uh, paddler around probably oh seven or so. Um, it just the 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 ownership uh situation well you know i've I've been there a long time running it the aca was talking about moving us back to washington dc um you know and i wasn't going to do that and it was uh the way the business model worked it wasn't really leading to dividends for me as a a co-owner so i was you know when i left paddler um i kind of decided and that's you know when you know websites were starting to come of rage and that sort of thing so i I said, well, I'll just keep this going with the web. It's a way to stay in the game, I think, keep my foot in the door of uh, the paddling industry and uh, writing on that sort of thing. I've been running, I've been running, you know, the magazine division for the paper up here uh, more or less ever since, and running, you know, paddling life on the side. So it's just kind of a way to keep my uh, foot in the door of the paddling industry. Um, of you know, and and I mean, I love reporting about what people are doing in the paddle sports world. Um, I mean, I did keep writing quite a bit for canoe and kayak and, and some of those guys, a lot of my editors went on to go work over there. Um, you know, while that was still going on and then sup magazine, they started and, and we're doing that, which is interesting. You know, you look at the whole sup craze these days, 
And that's definitely cutting into, I think, uh, you know, the kayaking, on the number of participants of uh, kayakers these days as well. And it's, it's interesting. I look out on our local river here, the Yampa, you don't see as many, unfortunately, kayakers out there as you used to. Um, but you do see you do see a heck of a lot of suppers. So. Uh, but anyways, that's just yeah, that's so just Colorado. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you guys. I mean, out there, you guys probably seen as many kayakers as you used to. Oh yeah, more and more. More and more. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Maybe it's a Colorado thing. Yeah, stopping on a river, definitely Colorado. <laughs> that's that's a yeah. weird, <laughs> uh, weird, uh, uh, you know, uh, connection between income and spare time and uh outdoor activities and the abundance of play parks i mean a subboard's fun on a play park yeah 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 that's true and you know play parks are pretty darn fun in a sub you know or a surfboard you know so you're seeing more and more of those but you go to any of these parks you know eagle uh glenwood um you know gold and all these you know you're seeing as many or more subs and surfboards than you are uh kayaks eugene do you see like a new generation of writers out there do you see anybody else who's ready to kind of like take up the mantle not necessarily of print media but of actual writing about whitewater i mean it seems like there's so much that's changed like like just what content looks like and obviously the the athletes in our sport are you know much more focused around the video aspect of it but it seems like you know even even absent print there's still a space for for a well-told story and it's i wonder if there's there's anybody ready to to dive in on that at all or if you see that or or any advice you'd have for people who are ready to you know who are intrigued by that yeah you know that's a, a very good question um i mean unfortunately you know probably not as much as uh as we used to um i mean there's still i mean i have two girls you know they're both kind of college age now one's a freshman and one's a senior and you know you, you see people like that and they're you know most of today's youth i think is, is chasing more you know lucrative career paths you know like uh and um, you know we all know you know writing and then writing about paddling probably isn't the most lucrative career choice you could ever make uh <laughs> but but you know but journalism it you know a lot of people are still going to j school um and and doing that and there's still a lot of outlets out there i mean even though there might not be as many print ones i mean for websites you look at all these different news sites and all that and there's still a, a huge need for content so uh i think there's room for people to keep you know paddling and other niche you know outdoor sports um in their in their mix you know and maybe they're they're doing something else as well but you know, and any more, you know, what's interesting too is any more you hear, I mean, so many people from the editorial side have switched over to the PR role, you know, and, and they're just because it's a more steady paycheck. You're kind of, you're, you're kind of not writing as, as much as what you want to be writing about per se, but it's, you know, it's definitely a bigger market for that sort of thing. Huh. I mean, I don't know how many writers I know have, have kind of switched, switched fields like that. I don't know if you went to college, like my kids are getting at some point we're going to college here and look at the price tag for college. And if they told me they're going to study English like I did, I'd be like, oh, Jesus, that's a lot of money for an English did. degree. 
you know? And I fancied myself a writer in high school, but I didn't really learn to write until I got in college, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. It's such a lost um, art, you know? I mean, it's like at the same time, I mean, just thinking about, you know, the work that I do and just like the people in my orbit. And it's like, if you can't write well, you're, worthless you know <laughs> it's right. like right. at the well, same that's time true there's so many job. people who just don't in, don't pick up that jobs. skill anymore you know yeah i mean can you can you write a product description for me you know in a, in a paragraph that's well written and makes sense yeah and i think writing is a, is a skill that's applicable to you know any of these jobs today's kids are going to find themselves in um and both of my kids my oldest daughter brooke she's we got her, you know, I worked out a deal with Knowles, Knowles once to send her on a Knowles trip and got her to kind of write four blogs while she was there. Uh, we wrote something on, on the website on it as well. And, uh, you know, so kind of forced her hand at that sort of thing. And, yeah, I think writing is a, a, a skill that all these kids should, should use. And like you, I didn't really pick it up, pick up the craft really until college as well. You know, at CC, you know, it's a liberal arts school, so. You know, took I majored in business econ, but you know, did a fair number of English classes there and uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, I remember my final class or one of my classes was called Western Western Writers or something like that. And we could either take a final or write a short story. You know, for the our final grade. And I was like, hell, I'm going to write a short story. That sounds a lot easier. <laughs> you know. Um, so. <laughs> Hard to well, think. I don't know. Yeah, if you look at the emails we get to Hammer Factor, it doesn't look good. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're tad rambling. <laughs> the percentage of listeners who are, who are getting John Weld's drunk and white references is declining quarter over quarter. <laughs> Eugene, I know you it's a style. Boys and girls. Eugene, I know you had something that you had to get to this afternoon, but what, what's next for you? What's next for Eugene? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, this past year was, as we all know, was uh, kind of an eye opener for all of us. You know, it stayed, I actually had a great year this past year, you know, it just stayed closer to home. But for me, that's awesome. Cause I, I did more trips on cross mountain than I've done. I took my daughter's rafting down and I hit Gore more than usual, you know, local runs. We did, we went and did this river called the White, which is uh, kind of by Rangeley, Colorado. And it's, um, you know, this huge, massive canyon that dumps into the green. It's just class one, two. But it was, a, you know, a 45-minute float or 45-mile float three days and just two hours away from our from our house. And I was like, we got in there. And I was like, oh, my God, how long has this been here? You know, this canyon, oh, millions of years. But, you know, of course, you had to kind of look locally. Um, I did have a lot of stuff that was canceled last year on me. I had a great lineup last spring and summer um, of trips. I was going to take my daughter down to do the Aparimac down in Peru. I had a sea kayak trip in Iceland lined up. So that stuff got canceled. Um, and I've been in conversation to try to resurrect some of those, but it still might be a little premature. I'm not thinking the Peru thing's going to work. Iceland is still, you know, getting in there is pretty tough. So keeping those on the back burner, trying to, you know, stay, keep my time free enough that, you know, it's almost like the, the later you can plan things, the better, you know, it's really hard to, to plan something five months out, you know, it seems like late planning is the only option right now. Yeah, exactly. Hey, it's open. And, and also like, uh, you know, everyone out here got hosed on permits this year because, you know, so many 
cancellations from last year went back to the same people for this year. So there's only half as many permits available with even more people applying for them. So I don't really know anybody of, uh, in my whole network here, people who got permits for any river. Um, you know, I might last year I did go do the South Fork salmon for the first time uh, up in Idaho, and that was just such an awesome trip and, and area up there. So I'm hoping I was just on this hut trip I was just on. I just got back from uh, one of my boating buddies is saying, dude, man, let's get back. Let's go up there and do that thing this year. So I might try to get back up there and maybe pick up a cancellation for the middle fork, uh, something like that. So not planning anything too big, but uh, but hopefully some good stuff. You know, the water out here this year is, you know, I think we're like 85% of average or something right now across the state which isn't bad. I mean, I always say 90 is the new 100. So if you're 85, um, you know, you're a decent year. And at least we know where we are in steamboats. You know, our average is pretty big. So if we're 90%-ish of that, then it's uh, not a bad year. But I'm looking out my window right now, and it's, it's bluebird and melting. People are already going to cross this year, which is, you know, it's uh, the amp is starting to run a little bit. So it's hard, it's hard to say. Um so hoping to resurrect some of those trips and then, uh, you know, get up north when I can. Was there anything else you'd like to add before we before we let you go here, Eugene? You know, sorry, I love what you guys are doing there, man. Thanks so much for having me uh, having me on the trip. You know, one thing uh, I think you did bring up earlier was you know the whole trade show issue. So it'll be interesting this summer. You know, the big gear show, uh, Darren and Sutton and those guys are running that out of. Uh, uh, Deer Valley this summer, so hope, hope to, I'm going to make it out to that, and that should be hopefully a good time to see see people again because it's as you guys all know, I mean it's such a tight knit community we're all in, and you know I everybody who's in it I just you know love and appreciate and all that, so it would be great to get out there and uh, and see some industry folks again, hopefully in a you know in a setting, and that's you know it's all outdoors, so I think they got a good thing going for them for that. Um, you know, and, and who knows if, you know, the in-person and big indoor shows is going to be still the, the rage that it has been in the past or not. Yeah. I'm going to just withhold comment on that. Let it go with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where can if, I, if, uh, if you talk sorry. to Sutton, tell him I want my booth shipped to me from, from Nebraska. <laughs> 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 Oklahoma. I'll get my address. Oklahoma. Yeah. Oklahoma, wherever the hell it was. Oklahoma. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> the booth's still out there. It's still there. Oh, mm-hmm. So is so is that Jackson RV that got hijacked? I think. <laughs> I think they found that, but maybe, actually, maybe they didn't. You never hearing about that? I do. I was like right there when it happened. They came running over to help me pick on the booth. Yeah, and they're like, our car just got stolen. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Did they did they ever find that thing? I think they did. I, for some reason, I think they did. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's a funny one. Where can our listeners learn more about you, Eugene? Where can they check out Brothers in the Boschkoff, Comrades in the Kolka, and 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 all the other things Eugene Buchanan? Well, they can go. Uh, you know, after I did the uh, the uh, Comrades book, well, anyway, I got a I got a few other books out as well. One called Outdoor Parents, Outdoor Kids, kind of like getting kids outside. Uh, the publisher of uh, Comrades book said. Um, yeah, you need to get a website. So you can go to eugenebuchanan.com. Got one of those, you know, paddlinglife.com. Uh, uh, that site's been doing doing really well lately. We did a, you know, we did a big redesign on it. Got a new web guy on board. 
Um, I mean, our newsletter list has like doubled in the last probably four months or so. So it's uh, that's doing really well, and that's a pretty good place. You can find all our contact info there as well. We got some great stuff coming up this spring and summer for that. I but all the Nick Hines difference right there. What's that? I think it's the Nick Hines difference right there. Yeah, it is. That's Nick. All Nick. Exactly. Can you give uh, us? No, that's Nick too. I was... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Eugene. Oh, I was going to say, Nick, uh, I did the, uh, he's the guy I did the uh, South Fork with last summer, so it was great to uh, great to hook up with him up there. All right, Eugene, we'll, we'll let you get to it. I appreciate it okay, so guys. much for taking the yeah, time to you, come Gina. on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Hope to see you out on a river sometime this summer if we can. Indeed. I hope to get out. I'm, I'm definitely itching to... Uh, Itching. I got I got some wanderlust going on. I'm I'm definitely ready to get out and get about a little bit. Get out. And I saw they're doing you know GoPro games is coming on board again this year. So we'll see how many people make it out for that. That's right in our backyard. So I'm sure I'll bop down to there for a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Cool. All right, Eugene. Thanks, Eugene. Okay, guys. Well, thanks so much for having me, guys. Keep keep hammering. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you. Later. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, Eugene Buchanan. That's a good interview. And, and it, back when I, mean, I just—it's definitely like a trip down memory lane to like think about you know the print days and just like being really young and like just super fired up on kayaking. And, like, when you have, like, one kayaking magazine, it's, like, you just read it over and over and over and over and over again. I remember having, you know, just, like, one issue of River Runner magazine. And, like, I remember the early days of Paddler, Andrew McEwen and I writing this letter to Eugene Buchanan when he was the editor of Paddler. And it was just, like, I mean, it was, like, this sucks, that sucks. Like, I want to canoe it. Wait, wait. Like, you, wrote, you, you wrote an elitist. Not you. The letter well. was, like, it was, like. It was like flat water canoeing sucks, rafting sucks, full page advertisement suck. Like this, and like and Eugene like wrote a, us, and we were, I mean, we were like probably 11 or 12, and we'd signed it, Andrew and Lewis, co presidents of the Darkwing Duck fan club for some reason. <laughs> I remember. Why and did I, you I not bring this a, up? I wish I had a copy of this because I, I brought this up with Eugene the one time we met in the flesh, and he didn't remember it at all. But he, uh, he sent Andrew and I back like a really nice humorous response that was like well you know like it's not every often very often that i get a letter that contains the word suck 37 times he's <laughs> like, it like, it like unfortunately i think my advertisers would not be pleased if i took action on many of your recommendations <laughs> god there's so much insight into the law you know the young piss and vinegar lewis galvin with that story <laughs> oh, I like you even more now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boys. Well, I haven't even looked at the trailer board, but I feel like it's due time to get into some listener mail. I pared it down to, I mean, I got rid of much, as much riffraff as I could. So you can make of it what you will. What? number do you have this written at well, i just dated it because i don't know what number show we're on anymore i get it wrong every time 
Did you guys see that they just closed Whistler and Revelstoke and God knows where else because of COVID? Really? Yeah, I feel like that bodes ill for summer travel to Canada. I didn't see that. Yeah, they they just closed them. Like they ended the season at Whistler Blackcomb, and it sounds like there's a bit of a outbreak up there. But I mean, did they? Well, I don't know. Keep my mouth shut. I mean, how much COVID is being spread in the ski hill? Well, maybe they may have answered that question. Yeah. I don't know. The whole message of, you know, it's just, I don't know. It seems like the message should be all about getting healthy. I mean, it could be something to do with the local area and whatnot as well. I don't know. Who knows? Ski lodges, maybe. Um. Okay, here we are. So you've got this labeled as May thirty first, twenty twenty one, which is yes. several I months. I gave up on the. <laughs> I mean, that's not even anyway. Oh man, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. You have no idea how busy it is here. I mean, it's crazy. Oh no, I hear you. Um. All right, you 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 went through these. Give us the rundown. Well, what do we got here? You know, we have the usual cast of characters. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go to Dan Gertie. He's right here at the top. This comes at us from Dan Gertie. Mm. As the foremost voices in all things kayak culture, the Whitewater community needs a definitive ruling from you guys on proper protocol. Went snowboarding at Timberline, West Virginia last week. While walking through the parking lot, I saw a a forerunner with IR and American Whitewater stickers and kayak stackers on the roof. I wanted to acknowledge the guy, but a simple wave wouldn't acknowledge our shared love for kayaking and would probably make the recipient think, why is this kook waving at me? With our... I think the... Yeah. With our Whitewater community being relatively small, I feel like we need a way to acknowledge each other off the river. Is the brown claw the acceptable greeting, or is there a more clear signal? Please settle this with a little bit of uncertainty. I think the brown claw has just the right amount of irony to pass. It's ready. It's ready to come back. Yeah, and I think I if you scream funny... like LVM brother while you're clawing, I think that probably <laughs> me and, uh... super real. Me and my buddy Nico were down, um, we're down in California one time and we're Nico was trying to hitchhike, um, the Love's Falls section of the South Fork American. So he's out on the side of like highway 50 and we'd left our boats down the hill and it was hot. So Nico was just like, just wearing board shorts and he's trying to hitchhike and somebody drives by with a boat on the roof, doesn't stop. And Nico gives him the brown claw and the guy like Jay turns. <laughs> yeah, like there was like he said there was it, it was, he was like trying to like, get people get this guy right at the like a flagging station. So the guy went all the way through a one way section of the road, turned around, waited in line again, came back through the one way construction zone and picked up Nico because he gave him the brown claw. Right. I think that's that. I'll third the brown claw. I think it's settled. Yeah. When we were kids in Maryland, we would uh, you know we'd always be like seeing each other. You know, other kayakers driving around town, and for some reason, we got really into just giving each other the finger as like the greeting. <laughs> that could be interpreted like, different ways, though. And like, yeah. well, like every once in a while, you know, we were all like teenagers who were like driving our parents' car, and you'd have to like call and be like, like, 
like Ryan, please tell Mrs. Bond that I didn't mean to give her the finger that I was trying to give you the finger. You know. Yeah, that one may not be it. <laughs> Although that makes me like you even more. <laughs> um. Next email comes from Antoinette. She says, hey, fellas, I hope you're doing well. I have a question. I have to create a bio for Paddling Magazine where I'm a new contributing writer. I'm trying to figure out the best way to say I'll be appearing on the Hammer Factor again. Um, By the way, my LinkedIn and Messenger accounts exploded a week after you aired the show. Thank you for the minor celebrity. I really appreciate it. Um, How can I succinctly say that I will be on the Hammer Factor? Um, I told her she was a contributing host. Uh, so that she, uh, Antoinette is officially a contributing host. And she says, today my nurse uh, anesthetist for my shoulder shoulder surgery in October said, I caught you, <laughs> I caught you on the hammer factor. <laughs> it's a small world. He's a paddler, by the <laughs> way, and so is my surgeon. So anyway, um, it is a small <clears throat> world. I am constantly amazed by the people who will come out of nowhere and say, hey, you know, on episode 44, when Lewis was dissing on somebody, did you feel like that was warranted? Yeah. I can't believe some guy write IR about stuff. What's that? I can't believe people have the memory for this stuff. It's like we, I can't remember, I like struggle with the policy sections because we do this so <laughs> infrequently that I can't remember what I talked about last time or the time before that or the time before that. Like, I guess episode guy... 44 might as well have been like. <laughs> Like like Paddler Magazine episode three or something. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't know. long ago. We got a guy write IR, I think it was on the IR Facebook page, and he was really angry at me. In fact, I th- he might have called me an asshole, but I guess I was dissing on Baltimore. <laughs> it sounds like something I was on. I, I was at a loss to remember exactly how I was dissing on Baltimore. I remember that. It was. So. It definitely made me cringe a little bit. Oh, really? I'm sorry, Baltimore. And Baltimore guy. I, I, I went to school in Baltimore. Um, Jason Cathers comes in. He ha- he says, hello, three wise men. He mentions that Soul makes a nine-foot boat um, and sends a YouTube link. I'll include this in the show notes. And he continues to talk about different designs. And he uh, basically... Um, gives praise to Corn Addison. And then he talks about uh, if you want to interview one of our local uh, paddlers, Caleb, and I'm going to mispronounce his last name here, Brosu. Um, he is a class five paddler who is paralyzed. He also won a medal in the Super G sit ski at the Sochi Paralympics. He is a huge inspiration, paddles a ton in all aspects of the sports. Um, one of the main driving forces in helping new paddlers get in the water and is just a great guy. I really like that. We should put that on the on the, on the the show notes. He's cool. I have, a, I have a buddy out here who's also a, a, a sick class five kayaker, paralyzed from the waist down, who was also in, uh, went to the Paralympics in Nordic skiing. I know that cat. He came into our store. Yeah. Greg Mallory. Yeah. Yeah, he's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's awesome, dude. The problem with Corin, right? I mean, Corin, in my opinion, is one of the most important innovators in our sport, right? But his boats usually, I mean, his boats are usually, I mean, if, that's such narrow bandwidth. You know what I mean? I mean, they're just not popular boats. It's like he like he like takes some like huge step forward, but then the concept never gets polished, and like somebody else sees what he did, copies right, exactly. it, and actually refines it into something that's right. 
much more usable. That's right. You get the I get the feeling like he has these ideas and he just loses interest in them after sort of getting, you know. Or it's like there's just like no scientific method and it's like I'm going to try like all five of my new ideas in this new boat and one of those ideas is a winner and four of them are terrible and like you can't tell why the boat's doing what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think you know, like the so, fury, right? Like, like the flat bottom boat, great idea. Yeah. Like, like side cut in the kayak, not a good idea. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. But the fury was like the first flat water whitewater boat, right? Dude, I watched flat, Richard flat, Old. I watched Richard Oldenquest make that yeah. fury look so good. Yeah. Then I sat in <laughs> one, and I was like, nope, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right I on paddled, the first point. I, with... I paddled that three oh three at least once and, and? It, it, it didn't really speak to me i mean that's the thing right i mean it's he makes these works of art that are conceptual it, it was one of the ones that was one of the composite boats built in china and it was yeah. uh construction was was appalling like just appalling yeah there's that too no i think you guys hit it on the head that's i've never really thought about it like that but he takes a concept and is so spastic and excited about making this thing it never actually gets to the point the incremental changes where it it works but there's like there's a brilliance to it too for sure yep. you know something there but yeah I, I mean being being a brilliant you know having brilliant insights into paddle sports is not the same thing as running a successful boat company that they're not really that's an ingredient in that but not by any or means even, finished business. Yeah, I mean or even making a boat that you want to paddle right there's so much boring iterations and detail work and infrastructure and all sorts of nonsense that goes into getting that boat to a really good product. I don't think Corin's that engaged in. That's mine, probably. We had Corin on the show, didn't we? Years ago. Yeah. 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 It was a great. It's interesting. It I mean, show. I wonder. If, I wonder if now. I mean, I feel like one of the things that's cool about what he's doing now is like it sort of does create the opportunity to like refine and iterate if you can. You know, it's like he's basically selling prototypes constantly. So like, exactly. I mean, you never paddle. underestimate how smart he is in terms of boat design. I mean, in terms of boat <clears throat> concepts, right? He's just very free thinking. There is no box for him. I mean, this comes at us from Miko Taylor. He says, "Dear Grace Geltman and Weld, I'm writing simply to thank you for doing the Hammer Factor podcast and to." encourage you to keep them coming i was introduced to your podcast this past summer and have been working my way back through backwards through the episodes ever since 2020 has been a difficult year for so many people for me it brought the end of my marriage and everything that goes along with that all of which had to be navigated during the pandemic despite all the difficult things i've been working through my year has been positive in so many ways one of the most significant developments for me has been my return to the river. I was an avid hardcore class 3-4 boater for many years before I met my now ex-husband. He was not a kayaker and so I stopped altogether. For eight years my kayaks gathered dust in the garage and yet I never sold them or got rid of them or any of my gear. Maybe I just knew deep down I would have to make a paddling, make paddling part of my life again at some point. This summer I got back on the water and all the joy came rushing back to me. It almost felt like I had never left. It felt like home. Your podcast has kept me company through many days this fall and winter. I've learned a lot by listening to your discussions and has kept me stoked to get back on the water as soon as the ice melts here. I'm in Ottawa. I even have my brand new spanking whitewater journal ready to go. Thanks again. You guys are great. Miko. Hmm. Man, thank you there so you much for that. Come on. 
You know, yeah, that's a great message. I mean, and, and and this story is being replicated, right? I mean, across the entire industry. Oh, yeah, for I sure. I mean, not her exact story, but how, how many people do you know that have got COVID divorces? Anyone? That sounds awful. No. Um, where do we go from here, guys? Um, Corn wants to know about the biggest boars besides us. <laughs> um, who, I mean, where's the biggest boar? This would be very interesting. So he's talking about title boars. This comes from Corn Kelly. I'll put these links in here at some point. This would be something interesting to talk about and cover the biggest title boars. Uh, you know, isn't isn't it up in like Halifax or Nova Scotia? Doesn't they, don't they have a huge one there? Oh, they've got them all, all over in like the Aleutian Islands. You know, there's there's several places. I had never heard of this huge one in Australia, but this thing looks insane. Like I'd seen I'd seen that one before. We should ask Benny about this. I feel like he's pretty tapped into that world. Yeah. 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 And anyway, tidal bore Skookumchuck is a tidal bore. It's where the uh, tide takes the water in and out of a huge inlet or bay. And it gets squeezed through a small area on its way in and out, creating rapids for a short time. Amazing amounts of volumes, bigger than any river, float through these things. The, I'll put this link in the show notes, but the whirlpools and whatnot on these two clips are mind-blowing. We do need to do something on that, for sure. Um, Bobby hates GoPros. This one comes this is up scratching a lot. me right where I itch. Yeah, let's let, let's go ahead right here. This comes at us from Bobby. No last name here on Bobby. <clears throat> Can you address the growing trend of entire crews bombing down the river yet taking the time to talk to their GoPros between each rapid? Personally, I think that's pretty lame. To see so many pros doing it also seems to communicate a message that kayaking is about showing off your audience rather than about living in the moment with those around you. I know everyone needs to get social media coverage or whatever, but come on. Can we please keep kayaking focused on the actual kayaking and not the kayaker? These rivers that we have the privilege to experience are disrespected when, when used as content for a vlog. This is Lewis. You wrote this. <laughs> I, I know you did. About it, sometimes when I'm feeling particularly negative about it, I think about Andrew's positive take on it which is when gopros first became a thing he's like i think this is great because i don't have to stop and wait for people getting out and filming at rapids anymore <laughs> not only that you can see who the douchebags are right i mean they don't they, shy of like wearing a t-shirt that says i'm a douchebag you can <laughs> they just announce themselves right uh there, this one is a long... Okay, look, just to take a step back. So, save Dave Fuseli, who bakes, bakes, basically makes his living off of kayaking, right? And he's, he has to go out there and create content. Does he, get, does he get a hall pass? You just said he was a douchebag. I know, I'm kidding. Of course I don't mean that. I, and yeah, not, I don't want to like emails from GoPro people. <laughs> I, I, it was a joke. Let's talk about Dave Fuseli for a second. And, uh, and his GoPro activity. Is that good? I mean, where do we, make the, where do we draw the line here? It depends where you are and what you're doing. Should people just check with you first? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I do. I do agree. Like, I don't. I don't. I. I 
it's for me it's not even stopping at the river i'm like people can't do anything about taking pictures now right they can't even enjoy the simplest things without bringing their cameras out that whole thing drives me crazy much less videoing where you're trying to run the river i don't i don't understand that either and there's an expectation if you go somewhere you're supposed to have like three thousand pictures and they're like how many pictures like i didn't take any pictures like you did and i'm like i was was just there i was enjoying it i wasn't taking pictures you guys are looking at me like i'm crazy am i not no no i mean i just i I feel like we've tried over this ground and i've i've trodden over it so many times that i'm just not sure i have anything more to say on this topic i'm in complete agreement with you i hate all of it (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you Bobby, I agree. I think we need to, we need to, uh, as a, as a sport, we just need to cut it out. Ah, right? God, dude, it's not going away, man. You see if it you have a in financial every obligation sport, or yeah. some real reason to be videoing this stuff. Okay, we get it, but beyond but that, even if you have a financial obligation or you think you have a financial incentive to do it, it's like you know the dam builders have a financial incentive and a professional reason to build dams and the loggers have a financial incentive and a reason to cut down trees. And if you're going out there and just overexposing the same places over and over and over again, you're basically doing the same thing. That seems extreme, but okay. Bam. (laughs) Well, it's not going away. I was out trail running the other day and there were three dudes and a girl going down the trail and they were GoProing their trail running. What could be more boring than watching somebody <laughs> trotting through the woods? I mean, it was a new low for me. I didn't really know what to think about it. But there's a there's a great New Yorker cartoon of like two old ladies sitting on the couch and knitting, and one of the ladies is like, "I have the whole night on GoPro, so we can revisit the excitement later." <laughs> Good old New Yorker. Ah. <laughs> New Yorkers, New Yorkers got got our number. This next one comes at us from Dylan Wallace. Um, Dylan tears into Evan Garcia and John Grace, um, and says it's one of the uh, about um, our vaccine show, which started it all. And he says this is one of the few times I agree with Weld. <laughs> Okay, so let me just get and, to the, the salient point of this thing because he goes on and on, right? He's obviously disturbed and sickened somewhat by your your anti-vax. I'm not. Comments, See, you are the one saying that. We don't. I mean, I you are I, the I, one I saying that. We're excited about that, but oh, the Jesus. thing that he gets to is he he listened to all. He's listened to every hammer factor, and he's agreed with me, evidently once. <laughs> I mean, that's how most of us are. <laughs> <laughs> But he's got a lot of praise for Lewis. And lastly, huge shout out to Lewis. I think a lot of the hate mail that you have received in the past is somewhat unwarranted. Your policy discussions are some of my favorite parts of the show and have a ton of respect for you and the work you have been doing. As do I, Lewis. I sort of like how everybody who emails into the Hammer Factor, like it's like like one or two of us go into the pain cave and <laughs> one, or, one or two of us get some praise, you know? I think that's, that's right. <laughs> We talk about my dad. It just kind of rotates around. I don't. I don't see any particular trend. You know, it's just. <laughs> I looked at the Hammer Factors reviews on uh on iTunes one day. Mm. Like they're awesome. There's some hilarious <laughs> reviews on there, but pretty much all of the one star reviews are about our left wing politics, which is clearly my left wing politics. <laughs> <laughs> uh... 
Yeah, go into the one about your dad. I'm gonna. I gotta pull up this audio clip and see if I can play it here real quick. This is from Gene. Gene uh, writes, met, writing to me, met your dad on the trail yes, again today walking his Springer. He looks great, though I still don't think he remembers me. I've lived in Dufif, the neighborhood where my dad lives, for 30 years, and my wife and I have taken up kayaking in our golden years. It's a small world. Well, Gene, 30 years does not cut the mustard with my dad. He's been there for 50. <laughs> He's 340. You know what 340 is? That's old school, right? You may be 762. You may be like, I don't know, 201, one of these newfangled numbers. He's 340, 50 years. You give it 10 or 15. We'll see if he doesn't give you a little nod, and then you're, then you're on your way. All right? So just patience. Great advice. All right. Carl Smith writes in, uh, please listen to my audio clip about IR manufacturing ideas. Uh, feel free to add to the show. Warning, slightly explicit. Hope you enjoy. I don't know if this is going to play, but I'm going to try it here real quick. This is a weird one. Can you hear it? Not at all. No. Okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not going to be able to do it. <laughs> Let me try one. Is this one. from our, from our voicemail? I forgot that we had that. No, he sent an audio clip in. He sent. I, 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 I got rid of the phone number. Um, but <laughs> Let's try this method. Tell me if you hear anything. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I'll put it in the show notes. You can get it that way. Anyway, Carl Smith, he does some ripping on, on IR. Did you listen to that, Lewis? No. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one, we, we've got some more comments on the Stib Night project, so we're going to have to, at some point, get um, Melissa and Fred on the show. Yeah, I mean, the drumbeat for that is growing, for sure. We've uh, asked them, like, multiple times, haven't we? We have, yes. Um, These guys need to embrace the hammer factor. Well, I kind of agree. They'll, they'll be on at some point. Um, there was, I can, I, there was a, uh, you know, like a forest service, like the directive from the, the USDA undersecretary for natural resources and the environment to the forest service to review basically all of the controversial decisions that were about to be made or had sort of been teed up by the, the end of the Trump administration. And that review is going on right now. And my, my understanding is that the South Fork is going to be on that list. So I, I'm hopeful that this is getting some attention from the new administration. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to uh, solve our problems overnight there, but it is, you know, it's a new day in DC and, you know, it's certainly some reason for, for hope that we can make some progress on this. Are there bulldozers moving in the Stib Night mine? And is it even no. called the Stib Night mine anymore? Didn't it get renamed to something like the Mountain Improvement Project or something? Some, I think you're right. Like, I think the they might have just family. renamed it like, in the last few months. But it's, yeah, it might have called Stib Night Mine. No, we're going to have to cover that. That would be an interesting discussion. I would love to get someone from the mining community to have Dude, a debate that, with... <laughs> 
<laughs> Fuck that. Let's get, let's get Freddy on and he'll, Freddy and Melissa, and they'll set things to rights. Well, when you get that electric car, you better be mad about the mind that got those materials for it. All right, Max Posner. Great episode with Benny. We did get a lot of comments about the Benny Mara episode. If you haven't checked that out, it was on the last last episode. Um, I've been wondering if we are getting close to some sort of peak in whitewater boat design. From the early O's, 2000s, through the middle of the last decade, companies were focused heavily on playboat innovation, which took us from boats like the EZ to the point where companies were all rifing on spud boats each year. Now it seems like we've reached the end of the road for spud boat design. I don't see companies feverishly working to improve them anymore. The Jitsu and Jed have both been out for a few years now. Aside from novel improvements in boat tech, carbon boats, lithium-ion technology, do you all think we are now approaching a similar peak in creek boat half-slice long boat design? I'd like to hear what the ABRG has to say about this. Maybe he can tell us what he wants to see in new kayaks down the road. Thanks, as always, for the show, Max Posner. I think it is time for ABRG to make a reappearance. Yeah. Seriously. We should reach out to him and let him answer this. Um, I would say there's a lot of room left, like the Scorch, you know, the Scorch 10, and things like that. I think there's a lot of room left to play with that over nine-foot zone there where there could be some fun things that come out. but I, I remember people talking about creek boat design being done in like 2002, yeah. right? Like there was nowhere to go. Yeah. This is not like a new conversation. I think there's I think there's still room to do some things, especially when uh, you start connecting a battery to it. <laughs> um, all right. That about wraps us up, boys. We are, where are we at on this show? I apologize. One hour and 50 minutes. That leads us to everybody's favorite section of the show, Rants and Raves, where Lewis rants about GoPros and social media technology, or we rave about the abundant flows of water consistently gracing the beautiful southeast U.S., would anybody like to start us off on today's rants and raves? I have a couple of like things I wrote down. I started a little notebook to write down the rants and raves that come to me, so I'll be less unprepared for this. Uh, Eighty-one shows <laughs> in. Is, Eighty-one shows the in. The problem is that I can't remember what I've ranted and raved about already. Like I know it's probably something that's just. You know, perennially in the churn of, of rants and raves. You but... should add these to your Whitewater Journal list so you have them more, idea. so they're archived, you know? I'm going to add that section to the next Whitewater Journal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to rave about um, the kind of like the race series we've been doing out here during the pandemic where it's like somebody sets a course on the local run here, you know, from like this place to this place. And you just go out anytime you want during the day and time yourself with a watch or a GoPro and, you know, post your time when you're done. And it's, I, what I love about it is like, I, you know, I like love racing. Like I really like it and I'm, I don't, but I don't need to like 
stand around all day and like circulate and have the same awkward conversation with the person you just saw 15 minutes ago as you wander around the parking lot waiting for your turn to race. It's, it's just like, it's just the racing and that's it. It's like you show up, you take your ride, and then you just take it to the It's awesome. <laughs> Was this your original letter to Paddler Magazine when you were 11? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Crossier and crossier every year. I? Well, I, thought you just, I thought you didn't want to see GoPros on the river. Now you're talking about go, doing a race run with a GoPro. That's, I mean, you don't have to post the run. You just time the thing and then, you know, learn from it. It's like you can Speaking you of which, Rush and Tyler were doing a race lap in the Little White a while ago and they ran right over <laughs> at the bottom of. Uh, you're you're the subject of much mirth on the the group chat. I tell you that. Yeah, that's great. And then you know, of course, he sent screenshots. <laughs> I saw those. Uh, can we get and some like, of those for the really hammer factor on the river? Is this really necessary? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's a surveillance camera, right? You're like at a Walmart getting caught with like stealing uh, handy wipes or something out of the. It's like somebody walking around with Google Glass. <laughs> Constantly. Ah, uh, boys! If you have those snapshots available, can you email those to the Hammer Factor? You know, <laughs> I'd love to work those into a project here in the near future. <laughs> no, it's really embarrassing. I'm gonna go ahead and preempt this right now because I was talking to someone in the eddy at the bottom, and I ran up against this stump. And that's, uh, that's now known as Weld's log. <laughs> and then I'm sitting there, like, and I'm, and I'm just talking to the guy, and like I'm flipping up against this thing, and from the picture on the GoPro, it looks like I'm pinned. I'm not pinned, all right? I was having a conversation with a guy while I'm pushing myself off this thing. Uh, what's up, Asher? <laughs> um, I'm going to go ahead and rave. I'm going to rave about progression. Uh, I know it's a played out word. I mean, and, and, and I don't mean it so much in like progression of the sport or the way that you see it thrown around with like the pro league kayakers and things like that. But recently I've been doing a little uh, teaching of some youngsters and uh, I don't know, just seeing the joy that they get from moving from one step to the other. And I don't know, when you put yourself out there, you make some mistakes, you learn from them. And you come out with a totally different understanding of what's going on. What are you talking about? That, all right? that to me is like the root. I don't know. I just like that progression is like what the most you, satisfying feeling, you know, of, of the sport. What do you think about like regression? Like where you get to be like a certain age and you start just like handing that progress back like one day at a time. You just get a little worse, a little worse, a little worse. You know what the cure to that is? <laughs> just totally quit kayaking for like three months and get totally out of shape and then come back to it. And like the process of getting back in shape, you're like, yeah, I'm coming back. I need to be on the program Eugene's on. Whatever that program is sounds pretty darn good to me. Sounds like he's getting after it. What a legend. I mean, the guy's like... Like, what are you doing? I thought, like, he's like, well, I'm going to be launching a new project and we're working 80 hours. No, he's going to Iceland. He's going hella skiing. <laughs> he's going, it's a Colorado lifestyle, right? Yeah. That guy. Yeah. Anyway. It was interesting to hear him complain about the cold water in other, in other places. I wanted to bring up 
some of the yeah, things. Colorado's not exactly toasty. <laughs> exactly, dude. There's no water colder than Colorado's water, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't know. Come on, you guys got to know what I'm saying. When you try something, you can't figure it out. You make a lot of mistakes, and then all of a sudden you dial it, and the next thing you know, you're dialing it over and over. Your perspective change, and you move on to the next thing. Come on, that feels good. That's my rave. That's a weird rave. <laughs> well, what do you got? I'm gonna rant. I'm gonna rant. Mr. I'm gonna rant. Yeah, I climbed Mount St. Helens a couple weeks ago, and I got my first real exposure to glissading. <laughs> There's, there's no such glissading as just dragging yourself down the ha- down the mountain on your ass using your feet to pull you. It's not a thing. So is your problem that people are doing it or that they're using the word glissading? That they're that they're fancying up this 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 activity with a name like glissading. Now, I've never heard of glissading. Tell me a little bit. So you just You've sit on your glissading. butt and scoot. Yeah, you climb this mountain, and if you if you have half a brain, you climb it with skis because you can ski from the top of the mountain to your car in about well, to be exact, in about twenty five minutes, right? It takes you four hours to climb, and you ski back down to your car in twenty five minutes, unless you glissade, which means you sit on your ass and you dra- and you pretend like you're sledding, but you kind of stop every five or ten feet and you drive your your feet your ankles into the snow and you pull yourself forward a little bit and slide a little bit more. And it takes you. Almost as much time to slide down to your butt as did to walk up this hill. That's an elitist attitude, Wells. You know? That's weird. It's like not everybody can afford thousands of dollars in backcountry ski gear. Just slide down on your ass. Just walk then. Just show some dignity. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That just doesn't even make any sense to me. I can't even. (laughs) I mean, if I just was standing there and I saw some dude pass me doing that, I would. Activate. They're not really passing. That's what I'm getting at. I mean, it was. It seemed to be utterly pointless. I did see a guy who had like a Walmart sled hauling ass down the mountain. That looked to be quite good, actually. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do that, just go get a Walmart and get a sled. How's that? I don't know what to say. All right. Well, <laughs> were you like actively making fun of these people while they were doing that? Cl- did you partake I, in I, it? I can barely see him because I was skiing past him so fast with such. Deep satisfaction. Uh, well, thank you for listening to episode 81 here of the Hammer Factor. We're two hours deep on this, and uh, I don't know. I guess we'll catch you next episode. You guys got anything to add before we hang up here? Mm-mm.